Hello, I'm Andrew Mayle and you're listening to the Mojo Record Club, a place where music lovers, musicians, crate diggers, writers, readers and special guests get to share their love for classic albums, weird lost gems and brand new revelations. My guests today are Mojo's digital editor Chris Catchpole and the Celtic soul searcher, living v exhibit and legendary creative genius and artistic provocateur behind Dexies and Dexies Midnight Runners, Mr. Kevin Rowland. Welcome both. Thank you. Hello, Andrew. Oh, hang on, hang on, <laughs> hang on, guys. My front door is going. It's all go today. <laughs> Combination of front door and dog, that was. Now, ever since 1979's remarkable literary soul broadside, Dance Dance, Kevin Rowland has, as a solo artist and with the, within the various guises of Dexies Midnight Runners, been on a dramatic creative journey making music of fire, commitment, certainty, sincerity, self-doubt and self-discovery. In the wake of such bona fide life-affirming masterpieces as Searching for the Young Soul Rebels, Tu Don't Stand Me Down, My Beauty and One Day I'm Going to Soar, he has returned with a new album, a disarmingly honest disco soul concept album about masculinity, femininity and misogyny, The Feminine Divine. We're going to listen to the first single from the album, the hopeful and reflective call and response soul dancer, I'm Going to Get Free, written by Kevin Rowland and released on the 100% label. And then we're going to have a wee chat about the album. When I was a kid, I could have used some company Doesn't matter now because Now I'm going to get free If it half kills me I'm going to get free Okay, ready? My name's Kevin Rowland and you're listening to the Mojo Record Club Yeah, I think think it's what, what happened in between 2016, 2017 and like 2020, 21, that, that lit the spark, really. Because for the first year or two of that period, I was completely, I had no interest whatsoever in doing music. I just couldn't see, I just couldn't see a way into it that I wanted, that I wanted to do it. I, I was drained, really, from, uh, from 2016's uh, uh, Dexys Do Irish and Country. And even one day I'm going to soar. Um, you know, Apart from the business side of it, which I did find difficult and, and very draining, even the music, I just felt I had to be responsible for every hi-hat pattern, you know, every bass fill, you know, it was just too much, really, and uh, just really draining. And, it, and it, Yeah, and I, I was pleased with what we did. I was pleased with the work. But, um, and also the experience of dealing with a major label. I mean, most of them were really good guys. Um, it's just that I just, you know, like, you put your soul into something and then you hand it to other people. And I just found that really difficult. And I just thought, I, I don't want to do this. Uh, and then um, I started to try and do other things. I, I, I got approached to do a clothing label, which sort of fell through. We, we, we progressed with that for about a year. Then it, it didn't really happen. It, didn't, it fizzled out. It didn't feel right. Um, one or two other little things. And then um, I started to go to Thailand and do some courses out there. You know, I was just interested in kind of, replenishing myself really sorry i should have turned my uh whatsapp off uh yeah so 
I started doing these courses and um, and it did kind of rejuvenated me and started to started to change my outlook. So it was about 2021, I think, or maybe 2020. I just thought, you know what? I wouldn't mind writing something now. I actually feel I could do music again. I think it was when we were preparing for the reissue of Tour IA and there was some good plans going into that. I just, I just felt energized and I just thought, hmm, okay, I could actually write something now and I wouldn't mind singing. And I, um, I, then I started to look, okay, what songs have we got? And, and then we started writing, you know. I'm going to break free in um, Manhood. There are some songs that kind of have been kicking around for a while now that you wrote with Big Jim Patterson. Yeah, on the record. yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And I just thought they've not really been used properly, you know, so let's, let's, let's use And they fitted with the concept. And how did you kind of conceive of the concept? Because, it, I mean, I said, you know, I kind of described it, which is kind of how it sounds to my ears as a disco soul concept album. The concept is front and centre and it develops. It's kind of it, it. You present almost a version of yourself or a version of Dexys at the start. And then that version kind of changes and evolves and you kind of and you take the you take the listener on board and they kind of have to embrace sort of it's almost like a kind of a, 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 a process of kind of learning or an education in terms of your ideas of the feminine and the masculine. How did that evolve as an idea? Because it's I mean, it's it's a big one. It is a big one. Um, well, as I was saying, with the, the courses that I went on in Thailand particularly, and one or two here. What sort of courses were they, Kevin? Tao, T-A-O, Tao, the ancient Chinese wisdom. I started to, to, to learn some of that stuff and doing a lot of Qigong and also some theory. And uh, the thing about the Tao, I'm, I'm, I'm an absolute beginner, but it's, uh, it's a whole lifestyle. It's not just like one thing, you know, it's just not like yoga. It's just all one, you know, it's, it kind of encompasses everything, the way you live, what you eat, how you exercise, sex, everything. Whereas most of them others just cut that out. You know what I mean? Especially sex. They don't. They don't. They don't, they mm. don't mention it. It's like a taboo, you know. But they embrace everything. They recognize yeah. like life force power, you know. So I was quite interested in that, and um, and that just started to change my outlook. And I remember like they started to refer to women as goddesses. Um, and the first of all, I was thinking she's not a goddess. You know, and then as time went on, I said, actually, actually, she is. Actually, she is. So I just had a shift myself. And the lyric, uh, you know, I didn't plan it to be a concept album. I just thought, let's try and let's see what we got and do some music. And then, you know, simultaneously, I'm doing all this other stuff, or I'd done a lot of this stuff. And the Feminine Divine, the lyric, I just sat down and wrote it in one hit. It just all came out. It just all came out. It was no thinking, oh, what am I going to write about? Or... Oh, what about this verse here? There was none of that. It was just like, as quick as I could type, it came. So uh, I just thought, oh, wow. And the same with um, My Goddess Is, you know. And uh, and then uh, at some point, I can't even remember what point it is. I just thought, hang on a minute. If we put this song first and that second, that this is going to tell a story, a narrative to it. Yeah. I didn't sit down to do that just happened organically. And also, similarly, with the first three songs, they all could be traditional sounding Dexys songs. Yes. You know? Mm. Uh, and and then after that it changes. And it that and that seemed to fit as well because that was the old old thinking. 
going into the new. Yeah. That wasn't conscious either. That just happened. We just thought, okay, those songs that need to be at the front because they tell that story. Oh, hang on. That's the early, that's the earliest. That's, you know, more in keeping with what people would expect from Dixies. It just sort of happened, really. It's like anything, isn't it? You put the work in, usually, and quite often something happens. You know, you get your luck. If you're lucky, you get some kind of inspiration or, or magic or whatever it is, you know. But it was serendipity. Things fall into place. Yeah, it fell into place. I just went with it. It does really feel, listening to it, it's like a journey. That yeah. it starts, you know, as you said, it's interesting that these first three songs date back to the early 90s. Yeah. Uh, where your mindset was at then. And yeah. as we progress with the record, it feels like we're following you through this realisation and this journey. Great. Of how your mindset's changed. Great. Great. Well, I'm not saying it's completely autobiographical because there's some kinky stuff in there and I'm not necessarily saying that's me. But um, <laughs> I'm glad that you get that because that's what I wanted. I'm glad that it feels like that because that's exactly what I wanted and that's exactly what it is. It's a total journey. And yes, when I wrote uh, The One That Loves You, the first track on the album, it's, but, which is basically saying if you touch my girlfriend, I'm going to get a smack in the mouth. That's exactly <laughs> how I thought then in 90 or 91. That's, that was my stance, you know, which was ridiculous, really. Now I see it. But that's how I thought. You know, I, I was sort of had that attitude, you know. Ridiculous and impossible to live up to. And the second song, I go, well, actually, you know what? That's not really, that's not really true. Anyway, yeah, you, you, you know the drill. On um, My Goddess Rules, there's a, obviously there's, it's, there's a kind of classic kind of Dexy's conversational call and response, man and woman speaking. The woman's lines on the track, um, I don't, the name of the, the woman who contributes to the album is, is that still a mystery or can we say who that is? Yes. Um, no, you mean the, the, the female? No, it's, um, it's Kamaria, K-A-M-A-R-I-A, Canasta, C-A-N-A-S-T-A. So the, the, the lyrics that Kamaria sings on that track, did she collaborate yeah. with you on those or were they also written by you? Oh. No, she did. She really yeah. did. She wrote. She wrote a lot. She's got a writing credit on the on on, yes. on, the, on the album on that track. Yeah, she did. She's a big part of that. She's a friend because it's like kind of yeah. Because that I mean that's kind of the way that it then incorporates those ideas, which I think kind of those are, you know when you were saying kind of that you incorporate some quite kinky ideas that kind of maybe fans might kind of think, hang on a minute, what's you know. What's what's this world that Kevin is is kind of you know pulled us into? Kind of the, the there's a real sense of like that you wanted that to be very much a collaboration with the female singer. Oh, it totally is. In fact, it, it a lot of it, a lot of it is from her. Yeah, it really is from her. The lyric, you know, it's mainly from her. It's just just her. I mean, I just kind of tidied up things and yeah, it's it's definitely her. It's inspired by her. You know, it's come from her. Yeah. At the end of the record, it kind of feels like, as I say, we've, we've come on this journey with you. Um, how do you kind of feel looking back at the Kevin Rowland of 1990, 91 that, that started writing the songs on, these, on this album? Oh, I feel... Well, I was, in, I was in the midst of cocaine addiction at that point, and um, we, didn't really, we never really wrote when we were high. I, I, I tried it. I just couldn't do it, you know. And, uh, but we used to write in between, in between binges, you know. And, um, 
And I just think, uh, what do I think? Of the camera? I just think uh, completely lost and uh, fronting, full of front. It's just a front, all that, you know. You know, if anybody talks you know, in the blah, blah, it's just a front. It was all bullshit, an act, you know, phony. Yeah. At the same time, Manhood, which you've re-recorded here brilliantly, is, I mean, I remember first hearing that and just thinking that is such a an honest album about, you know, frailty and insecurity and front and kind of, and, you know, and just kind of that yeah. sense of, you know, addressing that nature you know i mean because it's it works brilliantly in the con in the context of this album because it's it's it utterly about the construction of the male identity isn't it totally totally yeah yeah and and then i'm i'm sort of saying it's just impossible for me that to live up to that bullshit yeah i'm wondering whether the reissue of my beauty in any way played into the creation of this album because obviously there are parallels in terms of kind of you know identity and kind of an and I wonder whether going back to that album and having and reassessing it and also having it critically reassessed whether that in any way kind of fed into the creation of this album I hadn't thought about that um but it might have done, especially. I think probably what really hit home with what you're saying there was the uh, the critical critical reaction to the reissue, and not yeah. just the critical. You know, the people online uh, when I you know this discovered that so many people really liked it. You know, yes, that was that was just great. That was just great. Yeah. that definitely gave me confidence. Um, you know, I think I was already on that journey anyway with all the stuff that I was doing, and and looking at the feminine and, and all of that stuff, but. Um, yeah, that definitely helped. Definitely gave me comp definitely bolstered me. I was like, oh, this is great. Yeah, it was really good. Yeah. Yeah. I do feel, you know, as I said, this this album explores the notion of masculinity and femininity. I think some listeners in 2023 would be gobsmacked to sort of find out the reaction you got in 1999 from from My Beauty. Yeah. Purely for uh, you know, wearing women's clothing on the on the sleeve. Um just feminine, across feminine the board, the vitriol that was <laughs> feminine clothes, yeah. beg your pardon. Not women. Yeah. Divine feminine clothes, no less. <laughs> <laughs> Not how divine, but some of it. Anyway, go on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, go on, sorry. Yeah, I think as I say, like we look at it looking back at it now, just kind of it, it's it, world, it, I mean it was it? shocking at the time, but especially today, yeah. It's a different world, isn't it? It really is. I think I was telling, I can't remember, I was telling, I can't remember who it was, but I was telling one or two young people about that reaction. They went, what? They were like, really? I was like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's that, I mean, it's nice to feel that, you know, that it, it's an album that feels, you know, even though, you know, there is so much kind of debate and anger, you know, directed towards kind of like, you know, the, the trans community and everything, but that this, that My Beauty feels an album, feels like an album that is embraced now and accepted in terms of like the way yeah. it was the the image that came with it and the way it was marketed i mean that is something that it kind of feels like a positive oh god yeah definitely 100 percent, 100 percent. yeah you know listen i stand by it completely but there was um there was another picture that wasn't quite as provocative and and i i probably could have used that quite easily i think somebody the artwork said to me pete said to me what about this one i was like nah uh, you know so <laughs> 
I can sort of see how people are like what, but I, I must admit I didn't expect you know what 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 happened really, and and um, yeah, but there you go. I mean, it's all good now. The the that kind of need to revisit and reevaluate, like kind of which obviously kind of with "Don't Stand Me Down" and also with Two Rye," this sense of like going back and kind of and hearing something else in the music and feeling that maybe something was lost the first time round with a with a mix or something. Is that do you feel that is kind of innate to your personality, Kevin? Do you think it's that's an in, industry thing, like kind of the, you know, you get caught up in the sound of the time and, and go along with it? Or do you think it's a Kevin thing? Do you think it's something innate in you, this need to kind of go back and re-listen and reassess? No, I don't I don't I don't think I don't think any of those things actually. Um I think all you can hope for, um, you know, you know, lucky enough to be recording music, which I am, you know, lucky yeah. enough to be able to record professionally and have them released, you know. All you can hope for is when you leave the studio to know that you've got it as good as you can get it. And yeah. usually, quite often, with a bit of luck, if you, mm. like I said earlier, if you put the work in, you know, you'll you'll get something else on top. You'll think, oh, shit, that's even better than I thought. You know, it, all the things will come together and then you'll get an extra, you know, a bit of magic, like a fo- football mm. team. If they, Alex Ferguson always said, you know, like, if we prepare well, we've got a chance of doing well. And it's true, you know, you can't guarantee it, but usually it's, it's you've got a good chance of it going well. So with such of the Young Soul Rebels, we had that. That yeah. was it, finished. I knew that, wow, I was like, this has come out great, fantastic. So that's all you can hope for. You listen again two years later, three years later, you think, oh, fuck me, my singing's out of tune, that saxophone sounds a bit hard, whatever. Mm. But I think that was how it was. Um, With Don't Stand Me Down, we had that. With My Beauty, we had that. The only reason we did it is somebody approached us and said, we'd like to reissue it. We'd like to reissue it. I went, okay. And they seemed quite serious about it, cherry red. So I said, okay. Let, let's let's do that, you know, and that's that's the only reason. So mm. we just remastered it, we didn't remix it or anything. Two Raya never had that feeling. I got yeah. it home. I was with I was there on the mixes and I was, you know, but it was it had it so loud in the studio, I couldn't really tell what was what, you know. And um and I was still relatively inexperienced, you know, I was in their hands really. So um, you know, I got it home and I listened to it. My brother was listening with me and he went, Oh, great. And I was, and I just thought that doesn't sound right. It's just, it's just too middly and too hard, and the soul of the songs wasn't coming out properly. It was kind of buried amongst this sort of hard, you know, acerbic kind of mix. It just sounds too much of that, you know. Um, but I didn't really know what to do with it, and I did ask the record company, "Can we remix it?" And they went, "No, no, no." And our, our stock wasn't high at that point. We the last couple of singles hadn't done well, so. When it's like that, they just they don't listen to you as much, you know. So they went, no, budget's done. So I, I lived with it. But um, you know, when we got the chance to, to coming up to the 40th anniversary, I thought, wow, let's let's do it. So that was the only one I've ever wanted to remix. I'm really glad you clarified that because it kind of there is that you know there is that sense I I suppose that I kind of maybe mistakenly bundled in kind of the the reissue of. Um, don't stand me down as well, kind of with the, with that approach, but not not so. Yeah, no, I think again, it it was just somebody asked us, said, "Oh, we want to reissue it," and I was like, "Okay." I mean, I was glad because I didn't feel it. You know, I was hoping it would get more. 
you know, uh, attention at the time. So I was glad to reissue it. You know what I mean? Anybody, you know, and if it comes, when are we now? 23, if they reissue it in 2025, you know, I'll definitely support that, you know. So like, like was, more, was there a version yeah. of Don't Stand Me Down that had slightly different, is that what you maybe you're referring to, Andrew? I seem to remember there being like a CD version that was remastered then you'd, you'd slightly change the order of the first few songs. Oh, yeah. Well, I just thought... Unless, unless I've dreamt that particular... No, you're absolutely right. Just uh, the first song. We added one on. There was one that was written to be the first song, Kevin Rowland's band, but um, it didn't quite work oh, out it. right. So yes. I thought, I mean, probably mistakenly, but at the time I thought, okay, the people who want this will be... They've already got the album... They might, I don't think it had been out on CD at that point. It was the CD, first CD release. So I thought they, you know, so I should put something else on it uh, and probably should have left it as it was actually, just, uh, uh, you know, because we didn't think it was right at the time in 85 when we finished it. So I don't know why I did that, but that's what I did. We did it twice, Andrew, and that's maybe where the confusion comes from. We, we, there was two issues. The yes. first one um, went long for it to be mastered with the guy to, to, to remaster it at Abbey Road. And uh, it was sounding really good. And I said, I, and we went through each track and you give it a little bit of EQ. And, yep, sounding great. Happy? I said, yeah, really good. And then he said, uh, just one thing. He said, I just want to put this thing called a stereo enhancer or something like that. He said, that's just going to give it a boost in volume. It won't change the sound. I guarantee you. I said, you sure? He said, yeah. He said, let me try it. So I put it on. I said, I think it sounds different. I'm sure it sounds different. It sounds a bit washy. He went, no, trust me. It definitely hasn't affected the sound. So, all right, you know, you know what you're doing. Uh, it came out. Pete Schweer, who originally mixed it, phoned me up and he went, Kevin, has that got a stereo enhancer on it? I went, yeah. He said, oh, fuck, no. <laughs> I went, I knew there was something wrong with it. So when we got a chance to get it, I did, you know. <laughs> yes. That's, That's it. What That's it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for both for clarifying. You're listening to the Mojo Record Club. That point that you said about um, prepare that almost kind of like the almost like the preparation is at the heart of spontaneity. It's not quite what you said, right? But it brings us around perfectly to the record that you've brought in to talk about today, which is Van Morrison's double live EP from 1974. Yeah. It's too late to stop now. Now, I suppose my first question is an obvious one, but maybe we'll fold in sort of, you know, its effect on you. But when would you have first heard this record? I remember it well. Um, summer of 76, probably about June 76. I was working in a hairdresser's. I only just started there. And um, the manager, the manager, of the, well, the owner of the shop, who later went on to manage Texas, Paul Burton, he, um, he sent me to the warehouse, the hairdressing warehouse, products warehouse, to buy some shampoo. And uh, he said, can you drive? I went, yeah. And he went, yeah, borrow my car. And it was in the car park. So I went, got it, turned it on. And there was already, it was like an eight-track cassette in it. And it was probably Caravan or Cypress Avenue. Uh, but it was towards the end. And I was starting to drive along. And it sounded, there was gaps in the music. And I thought it was like Little Richard or something. I didn't know what it was. But I just, it was sounded so full of life. It just jumped out, you know. And, um, yeah, and I, I, I carried on listening while I drove there and drove back. And, uh, yeah, it just, I, I bought the album. Let's pause and play a little snippet from the track you just mentioned, Caravan, written by Van Morrison and performed live at the Troubadour 
Los Angeles, California, May 1973, with the Caledonia Soul Orchestra and released on Warner Brothers Records. Turn up your radio. Then let me, let me, let me hear the song. Switch on your electric light. What was different about it? What was really unique wrong, really about wrong, this really sound? Wrong, really wrong, really wrong. I think it was more the groove yeah. than the sound. I mean, it was a yeah. live sound. There's no overdubs. There's no overdubs. There was one track that they wanted to use, I read somewhere, they wanted to use, but it had a bum note on it. And Van was like, no, we're not, not so we can't use that. Um, you know, it was quite raw, definitely raw, but it's just more alive than anything I'd heard. And, um, you know... Both songs, which had appeared on previous albums, um, they were just so worked in mm. that you know everything that everybody played meant something, and everything was there for a reason. There was nothing that was just feeling nothing, and we've tried to do that. You know, it's not easy, but we always try to do that. There was, there was, you know, there was just, and it it totally inspired me. It totally inspired me, and the atmosphere that he got, the intimacy that that. You know, the band were just one. They were completely one. They were one. And uh, the, the the intimacy was just incredible. You could just cut the You could feel the atmosphere, even on the record, really, really strong. And um, and he just went, he took them songs places they hadn't been before, you know. And it showed me, I mean, there was just so much depth there. It's just, I mean, for me, it's somebody like me, you know, I'm not educated. And it's, so it's indescribable. But, you know, I knew that this was, way more than most music that I'd heard. You know, I just recognised it on a deep level. I mean, there's a few of the bluesy standards on sides one and two that I'm not as into. You know, they're all right. They're good. They're good. But, you know, Caravan, mm. bloody hell. It's just ridiculous. And the dynamics and the way he takes it up and down. It's incredible. There's a great version he did with the band on The Last Waltz oh, yeah. as well. Yes. And it's on video. It's on and he does the high kicks at the end as he's walking on. <laughs> it's great. You know? high, high kick, high kick is you know maybe kind of high kicks maybe being a little kind to how high he gets his leg up, but he de he definitely kind of he's uh, he's having a go. He's definitely having a go. Well, you know, I don't know how old you are, but the guy that used to do that in England was Frankie Vaughan. There's remember Frankie Vaughan. He was like, give me the moonlight. Yes, yeah, yeah. and he do the high kicks. I do remember so, Frankie. And I found Vaughan, out. Yes. I think it was Gavin Martin told me that. Um, Van's mum was a cabaret singer, so he, and even even the riff on uh, on Caravan, yes. da, 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 brass riff, it sounds kind of cabaret actually. Do you know what I mean? It's like a cabaret riff, mm. but it's got yes, so much very soul, much so. you know. So he's putting all kinds of music in there. He's just brilliant when he's on. When he's on, he's on. Absolutely, because you've got those show band elements, True. and say you've got cabaret and you've got jazz, True. and you know, yeah, all coming in. Have you watched the live footage um, from the from the, the rainbow yeah. footage? Yeah, and I don't Park? think it's anything like as good. I think it just proves that it's it was all about the night, you know. And I I, I don't think he made it on that night on the on the yes. It just nowhere near as good for me. Nowhere near as good, you know. 
the thing that surprised me, though, and I kind of, um, John, the Mojo's editor, John Mulvey, was saying that he kind of, and it's a, it's a brilliant quote. He says he understands totally how musical transcendence can be achieved through discipline, which I think is almost like a kind of Dexy's mm. statement, you know, that you kind of, at the heart, you need the rehearsal and the discipline. Like, even though you listen to that album and it sounds yeah. completely created in the moment, yeah. you listen to sort of alternate versions and they're so close to the perfect version. There may be just a little something missing, but in terms of how they've been put together and rehearsed, you know that there's that band and van are so on point throughout yeah. the whole performance. <clears throat> yeah, oh, you've, you've got to put the work in. Well, I have to. I'm not like a genius. I can't just, yeah. you know, create like that. I mean, ideas do come to me. You know, like I said, that lyric came fully formed for Feminine Divine. I think pretty much. I might have made a couple of amendments. It was basically nothing. It all just came out. Um, but if I'm not putting the work in, I don't get that kind of inspiration. You know, I've, I've written songs, melodies and lyrics as, as well when I'm going to sleep. I'm just lying in bed about to sleep and a, a melody or a... But I don't get that if I don't put the work in, if I don't put the hours in, you know. <laughs> if I sit around watching the yeah, telly yes. all day, I don't get any ideas, you know. Yeah, but, but I mean, with, with Van and, and that, that album, I mean, I, I think um, he'd obviously, they'd obviously put the work in. They, they knew them songs inside out. You've got to know them songs. You've got to know the song inside out to, to fly, to, you know what I mean, I think, to really fly. If you're worried about, oh, am I going to get the lyric right? Is that the right chord? You know, you're not going to, you know, that's, that's, that's the focus. But um, yeah, I think, for example, like I said, I think that rainbow, it just shows you that there's a certain amount of luck involved. And on It's Too Late to Stop Now, it happened. You know, the magic happened. Yes. But whereas on that rainbow version, for me, the same songs, the same arrangements, pretty much. But it's just not flying, you know. It's also to do with the audience, isn't it, as well? It's like kind of because you, you hear different audience responses on the different performances. And you kind of with some... You know, they're kind of quite laid back with others. They're totally caught up. And so it has to depend on how the response that you're getting from the people watching. Yeah, it's got a lot to do with it. Totally. Yeah, it's got a lot to do with it. There's that magical bit in uh, on Cypress Avenue that I think recorded in America. And you just get almost like he's in total control yeah. of the band. And the audience member sh shouts out, was it? Yeah. Turn it on. And he just he just goes... It's on already. And then, bam, as long as you can hear him do that and the band just lifts yeah, behind him. It's yeah. so perfect. Yeah, so yeah. Perfect. And when he goes, it's too late to stop now. And then, yeah. It's brilliant. And again, that's almost cabaret. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, did it change your, what was your opinion of Van before you heard It's Too Late to Stop Now? Did you already, how well did you already know his stuff? Did you already have an idea of who you thought he I was? I mean, did it shift totally, your opinion of Totally. It? I mean, I did have an idea because I'd just moved to Birmingham like in 74, a couple of years earlier. And my brother, Pete, just finished Teacher's Training College. And, um, and he was, Pete a music, was a musician. God rest him. And um, uh, a couple of his, one of his mates, Ronan, was a massive Van fan. And Van, uh, Ronan was a bit of a hippie, a sort of long hair and a check shirt and all that and jeans, you know. And I wasn't into that. I was wearing bowling shirts and bags and things. And, um, you know, I'd hear a couple of Van tracks, you know, but I didn't, I didn't really get them, you know, and I'd heard Brown Eyed Girl, he was always going on about Brown Eyed Girl, I thought, yeah, it's a good song, you know, but it didn't really, it didn't interest me. And I saw the album covers, didn't interest me at all. Um, simultaneously, around the same time, I, I don't know whether it was, 
maybe it was just before that. I'm, I'm not sure, but um, I, I, I heard Astral Weeks around the same time. I'm not sure which was first, but, um, uh, you know, I was in this wine bar in Birmingham and uh, they played it through. And the first time I heard it, it just, I thought, that sounds weird. Like he's making up the songs as he's going along. And then the woman in the, who was running the place clearly loved the album. She was singing along with it. I think she played it three times that night. So second time I was thinking, okay, making a bit more sense. And by the third time I thought, oh, blimey, that's interesting. I don't think I rushed out and bought it, but it's probably after hearing then it's too late to stop now that I thought, and then I started, then I got asked yeah. for weeks. And, I mean, at this yeah. point, was it you said you heard it 76? I mean, your pre-Dexys band, The Killjoys, were, were you, is that where your head was at? Were you sort of punk was what? The music you were thinking about or making at this point? No, uh, I think we formed Dexys, probably, uh, sorry, uh, Killjoys, probably uh, late summer, early autumn, 76. So I was a, bit, a couple of months before that. The band that really blown me away at that point was a big summer for me, that, not not the set, was, was a deaf school. I saw this art rock band. Yeah, they were, they were yeah, just incredible yeah. live. Clive Langer, but... Clive um, Langer. He wrote a lot of the music, but... um. Enrico Cadillac Jr., which is a guy called Steve Allen, who was also in Original Mirrors. Um, was a brilliant, absolutely, they had three yeah. frontmen who were a great band. They were like nothing else I'd ever seen. They were using music from the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and even, even a bit of 70s thrown in. They all had their own look. They, they were brilliant. Blown away when I saw them. That's actually what made me think I want to form a band, you know. And we started to form it, and then simultaneously punk happened, and we yeah. just sort of merge with that really the one thing that works against van is if you if you are somebody who has an eye for fashion and sharpness and how people look on stage just seeing van isn't going to do it for you is it you know because he's you know he's got the patch jeans and the long hair and all that kind of stuff but with like as you say with deaf school they had that you know they had that kind of art school style down didn't they they really did they really did they were a mixture of art students and lecturers they all got together and formed this band incredible and they were just great yeah. and they never quite captured it on record foolishly they had well maybe not maybe it was wasn't their choice but uh no they had rob dickens who was their r man produced the album and it, he, he he didn't you know he didn't capture anything as good as they are live you get you don't get the feeling there's some tracks are good but um live there was something else and there's hardly any footage because they didn't get much tv exposure and there you go once you know that this was a key record for you and you listen to it's too late to stop now for me I, I can hear little germs and little threads of of the albums that you made you know in in that sort of stack soul review sound in in the in the in the fiddles and the the intimacy that you know when you were sort of combining these these two sounds. I mean, was that is it a record that you kind of dipped back into or went for to sort of not, find the music? Not consciously. I mean, it was always a benchmark. It was always a benchmark for how you know how you know how groovy, how live, how real, how kind of um, in the groove and you know present. The the, the track. It was always a benchmark, but never really, mm. you know, not consciously with the strings. I mean, um, did we? Um, I thought it was great that he used strings. I thought that, you know, Caledonia String Orchestra, or whatever he calls them, Caledonia Soul Orchestra, were just great. Um, 
but never, not really think, oh, I'll have that idea, I'll have that idea, except perhaps on, um, on, we already had the brass riff on um, Now, which is the first track off One Day I'm Going to Soar. Uh, we, we had the brass riff already, so it's, it's a completely different riff, but we had the idea of just going really quiet, and then I said, I think, we got to go, and they come in, I can't remember the riff, but it's, you know, that idea, we use that idea of similar dynamics there. Yeah. That's the only conscious I can think of, of any action, unless you can hear any yeah. others I'm not aware of. No, no not so much, because it's more, you know, I suppose things like the um, listening to the projected passion review, you know, that, that sort of between the first album and second album tour you did, of having that discipline and that intimacy and the sort of command of the band. That's kind true. Of, for me, you know, that's kind of your equivalent of this album just having that power. yeah i suppose so i mean i again I, I more maybe more of a subconscious thing did i i was very into van when we were you know starting that projected passion review and the second dexes you know i was really listening to a lot of van and probably encouraging the band to as well uh yeah were you a hard taskmaster at that point which me? Is really, looking back on it me yeah <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Very, very, very. But it was, um, but we'd made some great music. It's not, fortunately, it's not really captured on that projected passion view sort of co mm. co cobbled together album, which isn't really an album. Um, and there's a few live things, but they, and one of them even says at the old Vic, but it wasn't at the old Vic because that wasn't recorded. And they were good shows, you know. But um, yeah, it was, uh, it was, we made some good music, but it was not sustainable really because what you really need is people who are into it. And I think that we were, there was a bit of a hurry to get the band together to make, you know, to do a single probably before the Bureau did, you know, or, or not get left behind, you know, to, to make something happen. And um, it was a question of, no, 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 don't do that. You ain't doing that. Do this. And um, that, again, that's not sustainable because eventually people just want to do their own thing, you know. And uh, unless you want to be 24-7 controlling it, which I did for a while, you can't you can't keep it going like that, you know. And it's no life. They're more for me. Have you ever met him, Kevin? Have you ever met Van Morrison? I have. I've met him a few times. Yeah. I've always found him charming. And were you able to tell him? I don't recognize Were you able to tell story. him? Yes. Yes. Tell me a bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. What, how great he is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was, um, we approached him to, to produce a track. I think he, he did come down to the studio to, to do a vocal on, uh, Jackie Wilson said, um, you know, we, we asked, uh, the, the, we, I think the record company contacted his manager and they brought, he came down and, and he just went, look, you're doing an interpretation. There's no point me singing on it. You, what you're doing is you're not, it's not a cover. It's an interpretation. And Clive Langer went, played him our version the one that i'd got and clive said oh, that's the oh this is the guide vocal van and van went no no that's not the, that's not the guide vocal that's the vocal that's what he said so i was pleased about that and then i saw him a couple of times and he invited me down the studio when he's recording not beautiful vision but the one after that i don't remember what it was but it was about 83 and it was a privilege to just watch him working you know uh, and they were doing everything live in the studio and um and then i didn't see him for a while and uh 
I, 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 I went into a cafe that I used to go into in Notting Hill. And uh, it's quite busy that day. And, it, and the, I was on a table and uh, I didn't see it. And the, the, the owner of the cafe said, oh, a couple of people, I'm going to see them here. And it was Van, someone else. So I just said, look, Van, I don't know if I ever never get the chance to tell you again. He was very friendly. He said, oh, hi, Kevin. And I said, but I never get the chance. But, you know, you're just the greatest, man. You're just the greatest. You're on another level, mate. You know, and he just went, oh, man. He said, thank you so much. It's really nice to know. I've seen him probably a couple of times after that, you know, been to gigs and he's, you know, he seems remarkably um, went to a gig at, um, at West Kensington Place a few years ago that Vince Power owns. Forget the name of it. But um, it was with Robert Elms. We were on the guest list and um, remarkably relaxed before a gig. Unlike me, I'm really nervous and trying to calm myself down. And he was just like, he invited us into the dressing room, you know. I'd never have anybody backstage to tell the band, like nobody backstage before a gig, just us. It's all about focus for me. But anyway, yeah, it's just relaxed. And then another time I met him was in um, uh, Sweden somewhere. I just happened to be there and I was on the guest list and we got invited back. And then I had a cup of tea with him the next day and he just, I just found him great, you know. Because I was nervous, I just turned into a babbling idiot. You know, yeah. and I just... Wish I'd shut up and listen to him more, you know. But you know, there you go. I think he's someone who is, you know, I think is made is more comfortable around musicians than maybe around journalists. You know, I think that's well, kind of one that's of the differences. But probably when I interviewed him, when I interviewed him, it was very much if you were talking about music, if you because I wanted it to be very much an interview about his influences, about his loves, about who is you know, and all that kind of stuff. When you were on that subject, he was a dream. He was an absolute dream to yeah. speak to when you were talking about musical influences and things like that. The one, I remember yeah. someone saying to me, the one question you don't ask Van if you're an interviewer is you don't, have any you don't ask any question that begins with why. You can ask when and who, but don't ask why because he, he hasn't, basically he hasn't got the answers. You know, he can't tell you. No, he hasn't. He'll just say it's he in the music, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he might know about the process, but that's yeah. all. Like I said, you know, the magic, it's unaccountable for, isn't it? And, um, yeah, and uh, you know what? He said that on a track. There's a 1980 album, The Common One. The Common One. Yeah. And he says on that, it ain't why, 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 it just is. He says that. Yes. It ain't why, it just is. One of my favourite albums by him as well. Amazing album. Yeah. Yeah, he's done some great stuff. I think that's a really nice note to end on, Kevin. It, it it ain't why, 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 it just is. Because in kind of terms of what we talked about, about Van and about you and about, you know, and music and everything, that just kind of sums it up for me. So thank you so much for, Thanks, for talking nice. so passionately and honestly about your own music and Van's music. I've really enjoyed it. No, thanks so much, Kevin. Thanks, guys. Oh, good questions as well, you know. Made me think. Brilliant. My name's Kevin Rowland, and you're listening to the Mojo Record Club. Okay, now we come to the part of the show where we review some of the new records of the week. My choice is Amatsu, the ninth album from the Tuareg pioneers of Saharan Desert Blues, Tanari Wen. It's an album that originally began as a collaboration with Daniel Lanoir and a hand-picked group of American country musicians, including... Um, Jack White alumni, Wes Corbett and Fats Kaplan. And the plan was for them to all 
record in this desert oasis in southern Algeria. But then Daniel Langlois got COVID. The Americans stayed at home. So it kind of became this remote project with the Americans contributing digitally, you know, files being sent back and forth. And so a much less kind of organic process. But you'd never guess it. This is kind of a warm, fluid mix of West African and Arabic styles alongside sort of a feel that suggests US blues and country and, and, and folk grooves. I mean, lyrically, the songs are poetic and political, according to the lyric sheets, calling for unity and freedom and liber- liberation. But obviously, I'm only listening to the sound and the mood of the tracks when I'm listening to it. And I kind of hear this harmonious album of laid back warmth and collaboration. Um really keen to hear what you think, Chris, but I just, firstly, I want to play one of the tracks. This is, I think one of the standout tracks, Tenere Den, uh, written by Tahami Agalasen and Ayadu Agleke and released on Wedge Records. I've never heard a Tenorewen album I didn't like, um, but I do sometimes feel that some of the subtleties between, you know, who's playing on it, the textures, are, can be quite hard to make out, I think, sometimes. But immediately when I had sat down to listen to the whole album, I think Lanoir has just done an incredible job on the production here. I've, I've never heard them on record crackle and have that space like, like, like how they do. And the, the idea that it was recorded remotely in places it was it's absurd when you listen back to it um i've never as i say haven't had that that sort of space you get on this record on tenario when and the track you first played um i think that was the first one they released off it um having that fiddle playing on it initially i thought okay this record's going to be much more of a a cross-pollination of sounds and it's going to be a bit different but 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 really it sounds more like tenario when than on any other Tanaiwen record I've, I've heard. Weirdly enough, Lanoir did not produce the whole album, but you'd be forgiven for, for thinking that because of the mood that it has, because mm. of this kind of organic, complete sound. And I'm like you, I'm very suspicious of kind of anything where, you know, kind of Western musicians come in and there's that sense of kind of, melting pot collaboration of people coming in and contributing certain sounds or bringing in a western production and you're absolutely right this portrays none of those kind of fears it's something that feels utterly belonging to tanari when and utterly in keeping with their mood but at the same time there is a real subtlety in the way those kind of you know kind of i suppose for want of a better phrase like appellation instruments like the sort of banjo or everything or a sense of kind of the american desert come into it it never feels awkward it never feels kind of shoehorned in totally that the mood of the album is is kind of completely at, at one with as you say if you're a tanari wen fan 
it's weird, isn't it? Because we're not listening to these albums lyrically, unless we're sort of listening along with the lyric sheet, we are listening out for those subtle changes in their sound and those kind of organic differences. And I think there's something special about this one that you almost can't put your finger on that makes it one of their best records. And as I say, yeah, for me, it's that feeding of space and nighttime. It's them playing at night in the desert. That's that, that's what it what it sounds like. To yeah. Me. And and again, I, I for me, I think the real thing is is the sense of space and how the guitars sort of kind of crackle and pop. It's like a yeah. campfire. Yeah. In, in Which kind of we, yeah, goes so right back to probably the first album that most people would know by them, the Radio Teasdale sessions, mm. and and the, there was a real sense there that you were capturing something in the moment, and. There have been subsequent albums where it has felt like that immediacy, that organic immediacy has been lost in terms of kind of people trying to bring in different elements. And I think my fear before I heard this record was that this was going to be something else and that, you know, Lanoir might have Lanoired up the wazoo, you know, and mm. and, and kind of, and you'd, <laughs> and you'd lo- you know, you'd lose what is essentially that kind of core sort of sense of you're right a sense of space and mystery that their best records have but it's all in there yeah 100% when on i think reading a, a press release when i saw jack white banjo yeah right you'd run <laughs> run for the run for the hills oh, run no. for the hills yeah <laughs> but yeah the absolute opposite is the case yeah if, yeah. if anything it, it's made them it's more like them than before yeah i de- definitely one of their best albums i'd say um Okay, Chris, what is your new album choice for this week? Well, I've brought in BC Camplight's The Last Rotation of Earth, which for me, um, I would say that there's a lot of things about this record that, as we were saying before, that on paper would make me run to the hills. Yeah. Um, you know, as I think on on all of his records, there is this sort of a slightly arch-knowing character. Who is he? Who of. is he? Who is BC Camplight? Um, well, I'm going to struggle to pronounce his surname correctly. So just, it's Brian Christenzio. 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 No, Brian Christenzio. Yeah. yeah. So, so who is BC Camplite? Well, he's an American um, who has lived an incredibly checkered life, um, to put it mildly, as in uh, Martin Aston's done a great interview with him in in the latest issue of Mojo. Um but weirdly enough, the last three records, I think after one of several tough patches in America, he's moved to Manchester, uh, which he talks about wonderfully. I think one of the great lines in it was he says, uh, he, the first thing he liked about moving to Manchester was the weather because it brought everyone down to the same level as him. Because <laughs> it was so miserable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, as I say, he's, I mean, he's had incredible demons to battle, but he does have this incredible knack, which great artists do, of turning it into great music but what i always think which is very hard trick turn it into quite funny music as well mm. i mean there's gallows humor and black humor through all of his records um which sometimes i think if you're being a bit knowing and arch doesn't always land but for me this this album it does land and i think um when we spoke about it a little bit before it's because it's heartfelt it's coming from a genuine place. It's not, oh, you know, look at me. Here's my funny non sequitur. And here's my line where I drop in the unexpected swear word to make everyone gasp. It's coming from a real place of her. He split up with his partner of nine years before this. And it's telling this story, but in a, 
in a very honest and a very humorous way. Let's hear a little clip of the title track from the LP. This is The Last Rotation of Earth, written by Brian Cristinizio and released on Bella Union Records. why he chose BC Camplight. Yes, exactly. You can definitely, yeah, you definitely know why he chose to call himself BC Camplight. Now, in the past, various kind of reviewers have compared Brian's music, the music of BC Camplight, as someone who might best be described as the musical version of my kryptonite, i.e. Father John Misty. Um, So that sense of kind of playful self-referential, knowing, arch, Mm. incorporating lots of different kind of styles, like sort of music hall and kind of things like that. So the kind of music that I would run away from. But as you say about BC Camplight, I sense an autobiographical sincerity here. And there is, sometimes listening to music comes down to something as simple as, do I believe it? And I listen to this record and I utterly believe him. And the gallows humor, the comic references, rather than just being there as a means of kind of saying, aren't I witty, aren't I showing off? They seem to be there to to cover up and deflect from the pain in the same way that some people are self-deprecating or comic because you know inside they're hurting. That's kind of what you get from this music. And, and the, the, the thing about the move to Manchester, I love that what you're getting is an outsider's view of a quote unquote foreign country. You know, so in a track like, um, is it She's Gone Cold, the track that references Homes Under the Hammer? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. There is a humor there, but there is also a darkness there as well. And it yeah. is that kind of thing of like, it's shit urban britain it's bad weather but it's seen from an outsider's point of view and then that seems to be the kind of key to his best music i would love to know obviously you know for us we know the shorthand that if you're you know talking about a relationship falling to pieces and watching david dickinson during the day Mm. that's a shorthand for being you know you're sat on your ass watching crap TV during yeah. the day as your life falls apart. I'd so love to know what American audiences would be. Who is? Yes. Who is this David Dickinson character? Yeah. <laughs> but I, but I like that Tesco's? because he, you would be allowed to do the opposite. You would be allowed to go to America and write an album about your life falling apart and referencing daytime soaps or something like that. Mm. But the fact that he's doing this version of it where because he totally understands that you know british daytime tv if you're watching that stuff there is a sense that you may have lost a little bit of a sense of direction in your life you know (laughs) but no disrespect to david dickinson no absolutely not (laughs) but you know the that gallows humor that he brings in as you say it feels utterly authentic and it and it works because when he's serious and when he's singing about kind of true emotions they 
feel utterly real. So I think he gets mm. a pass. He gets a pass for the jokes. He gets a pass for the, you know, artful use of a swear word, you know, because deep down you feel that the stuff that he's really singing about is the real deal. And it's, it's interesting that you, you sort of said uh, your musical kryptonite, uh, Father John Misty. In terms of the music itself, uh, Frank Zappa, you know, yeah. one of these musicians who, because I can throw 18 different time signatures and sonic gear changes into a verse, I shall. You know, that's, again, something that I would shy away from, someone being sort of showing off the ticket. But again, it's something here that, you know, we've got um, which kicking up a fuss, which starts like godly and cream and then goes into like a Rammstein bit and then bursts into a Brian Wilson bit. That is, for me, again, the sort of thing that I'd be like, oh, okay, we get it, mate, you can do that. But it works here. It just does. Absolutely, because you feel that it's coming from a real place and you feel like he's doing that because there's no other way that he can express the emotions that he's trying to put on record other than that. There's a sense Mm. in which it convinces yeah. yeah, and what's, the, what's that line, if I want to put a lawnmower in the middle of a chorus, why can't I? Yeah. In the interview. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's like, you know, there'd, there'd, there'd be someone who did that purely because they could, and there'd be, you know, someone like Brian who you feel if he was doing that, it would be there would be a true and deep emotional reason for doing it. Mm. And it, it does create, which I think is quite good, the, that turmoil that you can be in a, in a blissful place and then, you know, it, it's mirroring an emotional and mental turmoil yeah i think that that, you know you can be in this huge big wonderful brian brian wilson fantasia and then it comes clanking down into some you know into panic in in a split second so yeah as you say it works because it needs to i suppose isn't it perfect i think we'll end there it works because it needs to okay you've been listening to kevin Rowland, chris catchpole and myself, Andrew Mayle. That was the Mojo Record Club. Hope to see you at the next one. You can all join in. And look in the episode description for full details of all the tracks we played and how to sign up for the next episode. Thank you for listening to the Mojo Record Club. All right? Thanks a lot, guys. See ya. I own records that have the power to make me cry.